Bazaar. Weekend. Variety. Wireless. I just would like to sincerely thank so many of you listeners and people up on Facebook and those that mail actually providing these days um, such a lot of good gets for Media Stick. The Goldfish Story, thank you. Uh, the In the Southern Hemisphere Irrelevant Skitey Pants, uh, thank you very much and many more besides. Oh yeah, the Matt Berry Brian Eno thing as well. I wouldn't have had any of those if it wasn't for you cats. So um, keep it up. <laughs> Thank you. All right, seven after nine o'clock. Skeptical thoughts with Mark Honeychurch. Have you been hacked and threatened with an expose of uh, perhaps yourself ransacking your dignity in the privacy of your own home, or at least the threat of publishing such uh, materials? Um, Mark Honeychurch from Skeptical Thoughts will take us through the truth behind this, or the lack thereof. And Kangan Watery's had a go at it. He's been and gone and got some. And some rather disturbing uh, news from the... the as they do like to call themselves the Nation of the Pure. Pakistan, the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Very disturbing news. Uh, and it is concerning someone who was here in New Zealand not long ago. Um, speaking at the Humanist Conference. All right. Also, later on this hour, Jesus Make It Stop, part three, as Glenn Harper walks us through the death throes of World War One. And in the next hour, we're going to have a crack at it. Poetry. Now, this was a suggestion from a listener as well. They said, why don't you do a thing on poetry, Graham? And I thought, oh, because nobody will like it. Um, but we'll give it a go, see if you do. Um, and we shouldn't make presumptions that people really don't find poetry interesting or good. And the real deal sweetener is that we find people who really love and know a bit about the poem and describe why it's good. That's kind of like sharing the love, isn't it? First cab off the rank, none other than Christian Karlstead, otherwise known as CK to his mates down at the pub. CK Stead. Uh, and he gets two poems because he's C.K. Stead. Go and get his book, My Name Was Judas, and read it at once. I bought 12 copies just to give to friends. I liked it that much. Uh, okay. And he's a bit of a poet, too. He, know, he knows a thing or two about poetry, so he's good to kick things off. Next up, Skeptical Thoughts, Mark Honeychurch. The Weekend Variety Wireless. It's raining. Bullshit. And Mark Honeychurch from New Zealand Skeptics on the line with something, well, it is a public service in many ways. How are you, Mark? Yeah, pretty good. And you? Fabulous. Now, this hacking thing that was happening this week, a lot of people were receiving emails saying, oh, I've hacked into your computer and I've filmed you uh, manipulating tissue to issue uh, and doing such things and we're showing you in the context I need 5,000 euros by in 48 hours or I'm sending it to everybody. Uh, a frightening thing, especially I suppose for um, normies and newbies and perfectly innocent good civilians um, to be worried about. 
Yeah, absolutely. This is an interesting one because um, I received my first email from these particular scammers just a few days ago, and it was it was interesting that it, it actually seemed quite scary at first. Um, they talk about how they've hacked your machine, they've got access to your webcam, and they've been watching you while you've been online. And uh, it mentions um, porn sites in my email. It talked about how they were using the webcam and screen capture while I had my fun time. Um, and they recorded this, and as you say, they're going to release it if I don't pay them. The first thing that tipped me off with this email that came to me was the fact that it mentioned £850 as the amount that I had to pay. Um, and I've not lived in England for 12 years or more now, so I figure whatever database they're getting my details from is probably going to be a very old database if they still think that I live in the UK. Right. So uh, also other people were especially uh, fraught because they are saying, oh, I've got your password. Yeah, absolutely. So so for me, it only mentioned um, my name and I think it had my email address as well. But a few days after this, so just yesterday, I had a phone call from a friend who'd received several emails. And the scary thing for for him was that it wasn't just his email address. They had a password of his. Um, I'll just read a little bit from one of them. It said, hello, I am a member of an international hacker group. As you could probably have a guess, your account, such and such, was hacked because I sent message you from it. Now I have access to you accounts. For example, your password for account is, and then it listed his password. And it goes on to say, within a period from July 17, 2018 to October 3, you were infected by the virus we've created through an adult website you visited. So far, we have access to your messages, social media accounts, and messengers. Moreover, we've gotten full dumps, or damps, as they say, of these data. The spelling is atrocious. It's really painful. They go on with, with this friend of mine to say... Um, the key thing is that we recorded you with your webcam, syncing the recordings with what you watched. I think you are not interested. Show this video to your friends, relatives, and your intimate one. Transfer $800 to our Bitcoin wallet. So generally, they're choosing Bitcoin as the way that they want their money because Bitcoin is untraceable. You, you can see the account you're paying to, but you can't know who it is that you're actually paying the money for. Um, so it's kind of a clever way of taking money. But I work in IT, so when I got these and when I read through my friends, I noticed a few obvious things that were wrong. For one, it's really weird. They're saying they've got your password, but they're also saying they've infected you with a virus from a porn website. Um, now, if they've got your password, they probably don't need to infect your computer as well. And the idea that they could hack a porn website, I mean, porn's a big industry. They make a lot of money. They can afford people that do security. They're not going to have problems securing websites. Um, the, the second thing with that one is the idea that browsers these days can be used as a way of attacking your computer. You visit a website, and as a result, you end up with maybe a virus or some malware on your PC. These days, browsers are known as evergreen. So Chrome, Firefox, and Edge, they're known as evergreen because they always update themselves. It used to be for web browsers like Internet Explorer that when you wanted a new version, 
you had to download it, you had to install it, go through the whole upgrade procedure. That isn't needed anymore. Browsers update in the background without you even knowing it's happening. So all the latest security updates are automatically downloaded to your browser. So it's very unlikely the hackers are going to be able to use a website to get to you. And then the third thing for me was when they started talking about how they'd hack my mobile phone as well. Um, it's going to be hard enough to hack my Windows PC, but to do that and, and then hack my iPhone, it seems pretty flipping unlikely. Um, and then they threatened me as well. They said that if I don't send the money within 48 hours, they're going to release this stuff. And they said that there was a one pixel image in the email that was tracking me. Now, there's a couple of things I know with that. It is a real thing. You can put a small image in an email. And if that email loads the image, the web server that gives the image out to your email clients can see that and it can say, hey, this email address has been opened because someone has downloaded this image. But I know for a fact that Gmail and other email client creators they make sure that their email clients don't open those kinds of images because they're always used for tracking yeah. and they're a sneaky way of doing it. So that's that's one thing that's wrong with it. The second thing was that I opened the email. I opened the source. I read through the HTML. There's no image in there. There's no one pixel image being loaded. The whole thing is just there to scare people. And I get the feeling it, it is kind of, it's the kind of thing that I can imagine a lot of people getting conned by. Oh, yeah. Um, and I certainly want to tell people that if you do get this kind of thing, don't worry. Do your research online first. Even if they have your password, that doesn't mean that they've hacked into anything of yours. Quite often it'll be an old password. What they've done is they've got these lists that are online of databases that have been compromised. And they've gone through these old lists. Some of them might be quite a few years old. And they found your details and they're emailing you to try and scare you and extort money out of you. But they really can't do anything else. They're not going to hack into your computer at home or anything like that. And if you're at all worried, just change your password. There's a few things you can do. Make sure you use different passwords for each service. Make sure your password is complex, um, especially if you can make it long. That, that's a really good one. The longer the password, the harder it is for it to be cracked. Um, maybe using memorable words and putting punctuation and stuff between can be a good way of doing it. And for anybody who's using popular services like Twitter and Facebook and all internet banking, you should always make sure you have two-factor authentication. And that's where you can use your phone to get a second code. So when you log in, it asks for your password, but it also asks for another code as well to log in. And that means that even if somebody has your password, that's not enough for them to be able to log into your account. Yeah, when that was instituted at this workplace, I moaned and uh, I thought, oh, another password. And then you get another password on top of that password. But that's why. Yeah, it, it can be a pain, but these days for a lot of the popular services, there should be a tick, spot, tick box that says, trust this device. Mm. And if you do that on your phone and you do that on your laptop, that means that you won't have to keep entering in the code just for that device. But if anybody like a hacker on a different machine tries to log into your account, that's not going to work for them. They're going to be asked for the code. And if they request a code, the code is going to end up coming to your mobile phone, to your laptop. It's not going to end up going to them. And so they just won't be able to log in. And the last thing you can do as well as a password manager. So password managers will look after passwords for you. Quite often they'll generate really difficult to crack passwords. 
um, and even automatically put them into the web services that you use. And all you need to do then is choose one very secure password and lock your password manager with that. Uh, and that, that can do a really good job of securing you. And there is a website I would recommend for anybody that's worried about these emails and worried that maybe their details are out there. There's a website called Have I Been Owned? And it's in Leet Speak, so it's really confusing. It's Have I Been pwned.com and if you go to that site and you'll type in your email address it will show you any time that your email address as an account name has come up in a list of breached accounts so occasionally online services do get hacked people steal an encrypted copy of your password and an email address and those float around the internet sometimes they can figure out the decrypted version but this checks and tells you how often and for me it's been 11 times apparently 11 times um there are different services online where my details have been stolen but i'm not overly worried because i use a different password for each service right that is such an amazing beautiful service that they do have i been owned have i been pwned p-w-n-e-d um bless the people that do that you know that's really good yeah it's really good, and it can seem a little bit scary because you're typing your details in there, and there's even a place where you can type in your password and see if any of these databases have your unencrypted password, which is not necessarily yours. It might be somebody else using it, but it is a legitimate site, and it is a really good service, and it's not to say you should really worry if you do come up in that, but just those ideas of using a different password everywhere, picking a secure password, two-factor authentication, and you should be fine. And this whole thing about them spying on you and recording all your messages, it's just a scam. They're just trying to scare you and steal your money. Yeah, and they have a way with words. We are aware of your little and big secrets. Yeah, you do have them. We saw and recorded your doings on porn websites. Your tastes are so weird, you know. Hey! <laughs> All right. Yeah, so, so one of the ones my friend got even said, after installation, your front camera shoots video every time you masturbate, as if they've got recognition that just recognises when you're <laughs> masturbating in front of your camera. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's move on to Kangen Water. We talked about this. You went and got some. Uh, do you want to just hear you getting it, or, or give, give us a bit of an intro first? Yeah, so this is something we've talked about before. Kangen water is an alkaline water. Um, it's a filter. It's a multi-level marketing scheme where they try and get you to pay thousands of dollars for it. But, yeah, I was, um, I was messaged by a friend a couple of weeks ago to say that somebody locally was using their filter that, that they paid thousands of dollars for, and they were giving away water free. Now, as far as I can tell, this is a lost leader. This is the person trying to drum up business because they want to be able to get new customers in this multi-level marketing scheme to pay, I think it's three or $4,000 over here for one of the machines. Um, and I was game. I thought, well, why not? I'll, I'll pop around to this house and, and get myself a fill of the water. So I headed out there with, a, I think, a litre and a half container or so and um, thankfully remembered to put on the audio recording on my phone before I went in. So I think we've got a couple of minutes of me talking with a woman as I get my container filled. Hey, yeah. Good, thank you. I saw on Facebook that I can get free Kangen water yes. here. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Brilliant. Sorry, I just quickly pushed this to the side. Have you got containers at all? I've got this bottle here, so it's not a huge one, but hopefully yes, that'll be enough. Right. Have you heard of Kangen before? I have, but I don't know much about it. Can you tell me a little bit yeah, about it? Sure. So this is our Kangen machine here. Yeah. And what happens is when I actually run the tap, 
the water comes through this tube here, goes up into our um, two carbon filters. Right. Which then comes down eight electronic titanium plates. Yep. Which is then split. So we've got the acidic water coming down from the bottom and the alkaline water coming, the alkalized um, water coming from the top. Okay, so it's split it to acidic and alkaline yeah. and you collect the alkaline and dump yes. it the acidic. Pretty much. Oh. We use the acidic as well, some for disinfectant. Yep. Um, some for beauty water. So you can use this for a lot of things as well, just not drinking. Right. Everything but drinking. Okay. Um, these are placed in over 400 hospitals over in Japan where they use them for sterilising all their equipment, cleaning um, their hospitals, as well as treating patients as well. Um, but yeah. That sounds pretty good. Okay, and so what's it going to help me with? I, I saw so, a few things listed online. Yeah, so it does help with quite a bit. Uh, yeah. It helps with arthritis, it helps with gout, helps with blood pressure. Um, these are just the things that I've noticed because I actually do a delivery service, so I'm from Gisborne. Right. And I do a delivery service up there, so I've just noticed all of these changes from my customers who I deliver to. Okay. Um, I've had a drug addict that's been on it that's um, now no longer on doing his drugs. He said it helped with the withdrawals as well as his cravings. Um, it hydrates you and it also detoxifies you. Wow. Does a lot. <laughs> it does. And of course, you know what I'm going to say next, which is that none of these claims have any evidence to back them up. It's alkaline water. It's a little bit alkaline, so its pH is a little bit above seven. Um, but as soon as you ingest it, the first thing that water is going to hit after your throat is your stomach. And your stomach is full of acid and is basically going to um, neutralize that alkaline. And it's not going to do anything after then because it, it's neutralized before it even gets into the rest of your body. So drinking mildly alkaline water is not going to alkalize your body. I've just, I'm, I'm drinking a little bit of uh, water here with some Alka-Seltzer in it. It's really nice. I like Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> That's the same thing, isn't it? But alkaline? Yeah, um, <laughs> I don't think that's going to work either, unfortunately, oh. for things like arthritis. Um, yeah, so these are pretty bold claims. And the idea that the body isn't already looking after its pH, that it's too acidic, it's just uh, the body's very good at things like this. It's very good at regulating its temperature, its pH, and so on and so forth. And for the pH, if you do manage to drink enough of this alkaline water that it does get into your bloodstream, what your body does is it has to start dumping, um, I think it's bicarbonate that's in your bloodstream. And to do that, it needs to make you wee. So the idea that this is hydrating you, apparently it's exactly the opposite. If you do drink enough that you start to affect the pH of your body, you're going to dehydrate yourself in the long term because your body's going to have to start flushing itself out a lot. I mean, uh -huh. apart from obviously the fact that you're, you are taking some water in. But the, the other claims that I was interested in were the claims about um, the use in hospitals in Japan. And I've been trying and trying to find any good quality evidence to back this up. And I'm just finding the usual nonsense online. So I've read a lot of stuff about how, hey, a lot of Japanese people like using water filters and some of them are alkaline water filters and isn't it interesting that japanese people they look younger than us and they live a long time oh right um, <laughs> and obviously the the 
attempt here is to try and make that correlation, even if it is a correlation, which I don't think it is, into a cause to thing. But I can't even see that lots of Japanese people are using these water filters in the first place. Um, and if they are using them in the hospital, I would doubt that they're using them on patients. That sounds a little bit sketchy. Possibly they're using it to make as a cheap way of making cleaner so that they can clean surfaces down. Um, but outside of that... Or I maybe they're not doing it at all and somebody just said they were. And that's it. That, that is another claim. And I found yeah. a couple of clips of the this particular type of water filter and water filters in general being used in Japan, but that doesn't show me that their use is any more prevalent than they are oh. in other countries. I, I'm not sure, this, as you say, that this is even a thing, let alone it's a thing that shows that this water is doing anything. Um, so the, the usual thing um, applies here. Do your reading before you think of buying into this, especially given that this is a few thousand dollars worth of water filter and everybody in the know says that it doesn't do anything. So you've, you've really got to wonder about uh, whether it's worth putting your hard-earned cash into this. Yeah. All right, the Australians, they've got a sceptics outfit as well. They have a sceptics conference, as uh, New Zealand does, and they're happening around the world, and giving out a Bent Spoon Award uh, to Sarah Stevenson. She's the Aussie winner. What does she do? Yeah, so she seems to be up and coming at the moment. So I, I had a look. She has a brand called Sarah's Day, and um, she seems to be one of these new young people that does a very good job of branding herself. She has a website where she sells um, e-books, like 96-page e-books that are, I think, 70 Australian dollars a piece, which seems like a lot of money, but she promises it's going to revolutionize your life. Um, but she's made a claim recently that she had cervical dysplasia and apparently she managed to cure it with the power of natural medicine, food, lifestyle changes and prayer. Uh, and this is what the Australian skeptics are really choking on, the idea that this is a thing. And there's a really nice quote there from the, the Cancer Council of Australia who say there is no evidence that there is anything a woman can do in terms of diet and lifestyle that promotes regression of this disease. So it, it seems like whatever's happened to help her out, it's either just it's regressed by itself or she's had some kind of proper medical treatment as well. Um, but it looks like her lifestyle changes and prayer are probably not going to be the reason for it. My worry is it looks like she's doing a good enough job of promoting herself that she's probably only going to get bigger from here on. And I imagine we're going to hear more from her in the next few years, unfortunately. All right. And lastly, and this is crushingly sad uh, when you read these stories, uh, Pakistanis are threatening to strike nationwide if leniency is, uh, leniency is shown to a woman who's been sentenced to death for a blasphemy charge. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've talked about blasphemy before and how it's not good that we've got a blasphemy law because in so many other countries it's used in a bad way. And this story is a Christian woman in Pakistan who in 2009, she used a cup to drink water and it was the same cup that Muslims used. And the Muslims picked her up on it and said, you can't do that, you're unclean, this is not on. And she bit back, apparently. She um, oh, she said, you know, that this this is my religion and I don't see how your religion's any better. I don't know, you know, what's so great about your prophet Muhammad. And she's been accused of blasphemy. So this was back in 2009. She was sentenced to death in 2010 
which is really horrible, just a local court, but it's such a minor thing, and it's not something she even started. She, um, you know, she just defended herself when she was attacked. She's been on death row since 2010, and I believe at the moment it's her last chance for appeal, and there are rumours going around in Pakistan that maybe she will be shown leniency and maybe she will be freed. And so the TLP and Islamic political parties really not happy with this, and they're threatening judges, they're threatening the leadership of Pakistan, saying that they're going to strike and that maybe some of them will be killed. And kill killed, her, kill the... her, is what they are saying. Yeah, but they're, they're saying that maybe the leadership of Pakistan might find themselves killed, and if that does happen, that it's the judge's fault. Oh, okay. But it's not the fault of the people doing the killing. So it, it's really horrible, and I, I imagine it's probably quite likely that if she does get freed, she will be killed, mm. because already two people have been killed because they've been fighting for her cause. Yeah, uh, okay. Th these are politicians. Yeah, and also a bit of a worry about Galileo Shmael, who was here in New Zealand. She's, her passport's been confiscated, and to track her down so that's worrying as well she was here not long ago we've got to go mark honeychurch thank you so much the weekend variety wireless at dawn the ridge emerges massed and done in the wild purple of the glowering sun smoldering through spouts of drifting smoke that shroud the menacing scarred slope. And one by one, tanks creep and topple forward to the wire. The barrage roars and lifts, then clumsily bowed with bombs and guns and shovels and battle gear, men jostle and climb to meet the bristling fire. Lines of gray, muttering faces, masked with fear, they leave their trenches, going over the top, while time ticks blank and busy on their wrists, and hope, with furtive eyes and grappling fists, flounders in the mud. Oh, Jesus, make it stop. That from the war poet, Siegfried Sassoon. And we'll be addressing the war poets from World War One. That's when they did their famous work at a later time, leading up to the Armistice 100th anniversary the 11th hour of the 11th day of November, the 11th month, 1918. To take us through the machinations, the manoeuvres, the death throes of World War I, New Zealand military historian Glyn Harper, author of many books. Before we talk about what was happening on October the 14th, 1918, you just wanted to address something that happened this week, New Zealand's darkest day in World War One, You've written a book about this as well. Uh, yes, yeah, so it was uh, the 12th of October 1917 and it really is New Zealand's darkest day in military history. The New Zealanders were in at uh, around Ypres and this is the first Battle of Passchendaele. Um, they'd carried out an attack at a place called Broodcinda on the 4th which had been a stunning success but the weather had turned after the 4th of October and it had bucketed down and turned the whole of the uh, front line into a quagmire and the New Zealanders are carrying an attack on the 12th of October 1917 which should have never gone ahead. Their conditions were just not conducive to success at all. They didn't have adequate artillery support. The mud was up to their thighs. The Germans knew the attack was coming and the New Zealanders suffered accordingly. Um, it is our worst ever disaster of any type. In the space of a few hours, 846 New Zealanders are killed, another 138 are fatally wounded and 2,000 wounded. 
it is a shocking day and our worst day in terms of uh, casualties ever suffered on, in, in a war. Yeah, and sadly it makes one think of those very, very well-known images of what Passchendaele was, and it seems to be 90% mud and blood. Absolutely, that was the very worst of the war. I mean, the conditions weren't always like that, but they certainly were at Passchendaele. It didn't get any worse than the 12th of October 1917. Well, a year on, and we're heading towards the end of World War One, the Great War. We've spoken a lot about what was happening in Europe. We will touch on that again and where the New Zealanders were. But what about the Middle East theatre? And where is T.E. Lawrence heading into this thing finally? a mercifully ending. Well, T. Lawrence is with the Arab Brigade and they have captured Damascus and are trying to run the city. So Lawrence is in Damascus this week helping the Arabs to establish some type of civilian government in Damascus. And unfortunately it doesn't work terribly well because they start arguing amongst themselves as to which tribe should run the city. And it, it, it's not a good story uh, for them. But for in the Middle East, in terms of Sinai-Palestine, the war is effectively over. Although in Mesopotamia, the Turks are withdrawing and the British are driving on the city of Mosul, which they will capture uh, in, in the next few days. There was no such nation as Iraq at this stage? No, no, it was Mesopotamia um, and it will become Iraq after the First World War and become a British mandate. So no, no, there wasn't. Um, it, was, it had been part of the Ottoman Empire and of course with the defeat of that Ottoman Empire, the various parts of it are carved up, particularly in the Middle East and given out to various countries to control, you know, in terms of mandates like France gets Syria, for example, the uh, British get Transjordan and Mesopotamia, which becomes Iraq. Really, that break up of the Ottoman Turk Empire and the carving up of it after the war creates all the problems in the, in the Middle East today. Was it a betrayal, as is often put forward, that T.E. Lawrence and the British, they said, you help us fight off your colonial power, which was the Turkish, the Ottomans, and you can run your country? And then they said, nah. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, that, that that's, it was a betrayal and, and quite a bit of dishonesty involved. Yes, they'd promised the Arabs their freedom if they helped overthrow the Ottoman Turks and took part in, in the war effort. They had a secret agreement called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which actually would divide up the Arab world between them. And at the same time, in 1917, they'd announced the Balfour Declaration, which promised a homeland for the Jews in Palestine, which was uh, completely contradictory to what the Arabs were expecting. So, uh, yeah, the British foreign policy, you know, the left hand and the right hand sometimes don't, don't know what they're doing, but at the same time they have no desire or will to free the Arabs and let them govern their own destiny, um, particularly in a, in a region so oil-rich. So, uh, so that's not going to happen, and it, and it can certainly be regarded as a betrayal of promises made. In Europe, the Germans are in thorough disarray retreating, surrendering, collapsing at home as well. But the Germans in Africa, this was a world war, that was some fight right up to the very end, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. And in Africa, the Germans aren't defeated. Got to say, though, the forces is quite small. It numbers a few thousand. And in fact, by October 1918, the German force there numbers 176 Europeans. I that is the, the German officers and 100 and sorry, 1,487 Askaris who are their native African warriors who are fighting for the Germans. So it's quite a small force. And just over 
over 1,500 men at this stage in October 1918, but hasn't been captured, hasn't been defeated, and under the command of Colonel Paul Letov Vorbeck, they actually elude capture for the entire war. And in, in October 1918, they actually crossed from Portuguese East Africa, which is a huge uh, area, and they've been roaming around there at will, and they crossed back into uh, into German East Africa to find better food supplies and, and hopefully get some cattle as well. And they're constantly looking for food, evading the British, capture the, the British forces who outnumber them by something like 10 to 1, but are never able to close with them or, or, or capture or encircle them. And the German campaign lasts even after the armistice. So it's, it's actually a very uh, successful counterinsurgency operation that they're running. And really they're tying down large numbers of British troops, which would have been better utilised elsewhere and, and actually leading them on a merry dance for most of the war. It is kind of heroic stuff, isn't it? Oh, it is. And I've got to say, uh, Paul Letov Vorbeck is lauded by his British captives when he does eventually surrender on the 28th of November and he returns to Germany a hero and is given a hero's parade through Berlin. He's regarded very, very highly and his campaign has been heroic. You know, they've never had vast resources. They've always been outnumbered. They're down to one gun which has been taken off a German warship which they manhandle all over Africa and uh, and they, you know, put up a stout resistance, you know, forcing the British to commit more and more forces but never able to bring them to a decisive battle. So, yeah, it is, a, it is a heroic campaign. And because they have lost their colonies for some time now, we forget that Germany did have significant colonial territories in Africa at the time. Uh, yes, they did. Uh, they they had uh, they they weren't particularly wealthy or large. Their prize was German East Africa, which becomes Namibia. They also had a little enclave in Togo land, and of course they had colonies out this part of the world too, in, in German Samoa and and, and in uh, what is now part of PNG. So yeah, yeah, they did have a an empire, but it was quickly overrun, and it's uh, really only let off Vorbeck's force that actually offers uh, resistance until the end of the war, and, and mm. it conducts a very successful military operation. Yeah, and one of the shadows of that time of German occupation, you will notice German surnames turning up on the rugby league and rugby and netball arenas here in New Zealand, the Schusters, the Kaisenbergs, all of those. Yeah, it's the legacy, and don't forget their enclave in China still gives us that Tiao beer, so it's, um, you know, <laughs> there is that legacy which continues. All right, to Europe. Polish declares its independence this week in 1918. What's going on? Well, it, it does, but effectively they can't do anything about it until uh, the Treaty of Versailles actually ratifies. I mean, Poland had been an independent country for hundreds of years until it was carved up in 1792 between Prussia, the Austrian Empire and the Russians. So it ceases to exist until 1918 when it, when it does declare its independence and, and wants to break away and is encouraged to do so by Wilson's 14 points as well and hopeful, with hopeful recognition coming in the Treaty of Versailles. Which does indeed happen, you know, after 1918, you know, the Polish nation is recreated again and appears on the map along with several other new countries, including Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, which are all taken out of the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And it seems as though Poland really didn't have much fun at all until about 1992. Well, yeah, it's a very tragic history, actually, uh, you know, and... and primarily through their uh, their accident of geography, you know, being this nation in between Germany and Russia and, or the Soviet Union. Not a great location to be.
Okay, the action and movement in Europe, October 14, 1918. What was going on in general? Well, in general, the 100-day offensive was continuing. There was no let-up at all in its uh, ferocity um, and, and in the active campaigning across the front. On the 8th of August, sorry, on the 8th of October, the British Expeditionary Force, two of its armies, launch a massive offensive. That's the British Third Army and the British Fourth Army. The Fourth Army uh, contains the Canadians, and they break through the line. And there's a, the last Battle of Cambrai, and they actually take Cambrai on the 11th of October. So. Uh, 100 years ago and for their gallantry there are several Canadians awarded Victoria Crosses but the New Zealanders in the other army in the third British Army and they are one of the spearhead divisions along with the 37th Division, the New Zealand Division on the left, the 37th Division on the right and they have a very successful week. The advance started on the 8th of October and on that day um, the New Zealanders advanced five kilometres and, and capture an important village of Esne and they also in that time capture some 1,400 POWs and, uh, and over a dozen field guns. Their casualties are around 800, of which, are, which about 150 are killed in action. And the New Zealand Division then pursues these retreating Germans to the Sal River. And so between the 8th and the 14th of October, the division, the New Zealand Division, advances some 18 kilometres. You know, unlike uh, anything that's happened before, but they are tuning up the kilometres and pushing the Germans back, and they push them right back to the Sal River and capturing many Germans as they go. Now, capturing the Germans, mm. when they are in retreat and collapse and deserting, mm. How many prisoners get taken and what do you do with them? Well, you put them in cages or, or, or prison camps behind the lines and keep them fed and, and obviously try and keep the sanitary conditions reasonably uh, tidy, otherwise you're going to have outbreaks of cholera. Yeah, it's it's a huge problem for the British Expeditionary Force. In this action, this Battle of the Cell, as, it, as it's called, which goes from 8th to the 14th of October, the Third Army alone, of which New Zealand is part, they capture over 20,000 German prisoners. and uh, 20,000? That's a city. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And, of course, they're only one army. There's another army doing some fighting too, and the Americans are about to start a big campaign down south. And, uh, yeah, the Germans are surrendering in, in their thousands, and it's creating a big problem for the BEF as to how to look after them, what to do, and how many men to commit to guarding them. In the end, they don't have to commit an awful lot because the Germans are actually quite happy to be captured and, you know, that their war is over. But feeding them, providing them with shelter, protection and sanitary conditions is a logistical challenge, um, but, it, you know, it's able to be done and they're kept, you know, not too far from the front lines. It is able to be done. I thought there may have been pockets where it was just beyond human capability and it may have been a humanitarian disaster. No, it, it wasn't too bad, actually, but one of the problems was, and it actually, believe it or not, it affected the Germans in Africa as well, was the influenza pandemic was uh, starting to ramp up again, and the problem was that, that many of the Germans actually had influenza when they were in the camps, and of course that did cause huge problems, and, and some German soldiers did die of influenza, but the, 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 this is a pandemic, and it even affects Lethal von Vorbeck's force in, um, in Africa as well. It's hit by the, an influenza pandemic in October of, of 1918 too. Yeah, I, I understand received knowledge, which is a dangerous thing. More people died of the flu 1918 than the conflict. They, they certainly did that year. I mean, in terms of the war, the war does kill more people, but in that year 1918, the, it's the influenza pandemic that is the deadly killer uh, seems such an unfair tragedy i mean you've got this 
long bloody conflict which kills about 9 million people all up and then you have a worldwide pan- influenza pandemic which kills about another 8 million people. I mean it's it's just a shocking tragedy. It couldn't come a- have come at a worse time. I guess there's no good time for an influenza pandemic but this was a particularly bad time to, for it to happen I think. For the munitions to cease firing, mm. it's going to take political will. Yep. What are the communications between the leaderships uh, towards the ceasefire armistice? Yes, yeah, certainly some movement over this week. As I mentioned in an earlier interview with you, the Germans, through Prince Max, who's now the Chancellor, had sent a note off to Wilson asking what the conditions for an armistice would be. And Wilson actually replied on the 14th of October. So he, he replies on this day 100 years ago. And Wilson's reply is not what the Germans are wanting to hear. Um, he says to them that um, he's only going to deal with a democratic Germany, so the country military leadership has to go, including the Kaiser, and then he'll start talking seriously, and that he will also be consulting with his co-belligerents, Britain and France, and that the armistice is not going to just be a pause so that uh, to thrash out a, a, a peace, and if it doesn't work out, the Germans can start fighting again, but the armistice, Wilson wants it to be a definite end to the fighting, so basically the Germans aren't wanting to hear this. They think that the military can still call the shots. They want to try and keep Britain and France on the periphery and if the armistice isn't going to work out they want to be in a condition to renew the fighting Uh, and Wilson's having none of that and this is the first reply he makes, he'll make another one later on uh, re-emphasising what I've just stated but this convinces Ludendorff that uh, basically what they want is an unconditional surrender and he he says well we must fight on then, if that's what they want that's what they're going to get, we'll fight to the last man So, uh, so Ludendorff's reversed his opinion of the 28th of September, where the war must be ended, but hearing this reply, he decides, well, we've got to continue and we'll fight to the last man if we have to, which is not a good situation. Oh, is that blind to the conditions there and the morale? Yeah, yes, yes, it is. But uh, Ludendorff's not going to be around for too much longer because he, um, he he makes more and more rash decisions, and eventually even the Germans realise he has to go. But that's a little further down the track. Okay. Mm-hmm. It seems to be the communications are with Wilson. What about Britain and France as part of these negotiations? Is it Wilson that's running this? What about Lloyd George? Well, Lloyd George and Clemenceau aren't particularly impressed that Wilson is the one who the Germans are negotiating with because they know that they see him as a soft touch and and they're adamant that, you know, if there's going to be an armistice, they have to be involved in the negotiations and this is what will also pan out eventually uh, as we'll see when we get to the first week of November. But but you know, that, at this moment, Wilson is the dominant figure. Wilson is the taking the lead on this, but he will consult with Britain and France before he presents terms to Germany and those first of those terms are presented on the 14th, so today, 100 years ago. They're not to the Germans' liking, and Wilson has certainly consulted with Britain and France before he presented them to the Germans. We've talked nothing about naval encounters. The Germans are still fighting at sea. I'd have thought its effectiveness would be close to nothing, nil, regarding how things are going to inevitably end up. Uh, the German naval efforts have really tapered off. Um, they tried and peaked in, in 1917 when they reinstituted unrestricted submarine warfare. 
but bringing the Americans into the war, which unrestricted submarine warfare did, and also the Zimmerman telegram, also brought the American Navy into the war. And the American Navy, unlike the American Army at the time, was actually quite a large force and had considerable numbers of destroyers. And more than that, they had an open mind on how to counter this U-boat threat. And they come up with several things and insist that the British have to institute com the convoy systems again. And there are many countermeasures against submarines and the submarines are being sunk at a rapid rate, faster than they can be replaced. And really the German naval efforts have started to peter out in 1918. However, there is going to be one last attempt to have an almighty encounter at sea, um, inviting the um, sailors to sail out for one last great death ride, as it's called. But that's going to lead to a revolution. But that happens in the first week of November. So that's, uh, that's something else we have to look forward to. All right. And the year previously, 101 years ago, this tragedy in the Battle of Passchendaele, the mud and the blood, October the 12th, if we hadn't already had the tragedy of Anzac Day, it would have been a thing worthy of similar commemoration or notice, wouldn't it? Yeah, ab absolutely, although um, we're a little strange. I mean, we uh, seem to place a huge emphasis on Gallipoli and the Gallipoli campaign, yet some of the more significant battles and encounters, particularly on the Western Front, are largely forgotten. The bloodiest battle of the war for New Zealanders was the Battle of the Somme in 1916, yet that barely got a mention, I have to say, in the centenary commemorations, which is a bit of a shame because it certainly deserves to be more well-known than it is. Later on this evening... Gerard Hindmarsh uh, is going to regale the story as he sees it of Reginald Judson, VC. That name would resonate with you, wouldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah a magnificent soldier, uh, Judson. In fact, he won every gallantry award it was possible to win for a New Zealand soldier during the First World War. Glenn Harper, thank you very, very much. And we'll revisit the last of the horrors of World War I as we count down to Armistice, which will be a Sunday, November the 11th, 100 years ago. Thank you very much. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Of course, another episode next week of Jesus Make It Stop with Glenn Harper uh, right up until November the 11th, the 100th anniversary of the ceasefire, World War I. Uh, go into the draw to win yourself a copy of the Kakapo book. Just email. You've got about an hour to get in there and do it. Um, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Say, use the email form, say you'd like the Kakapo book. Leave your postal address. You will be in the draw. And we'll be drawing a winner just before uh, 11 o'clock, ahead of Outsiders, another World War I tale.